Welcome back, Toppers! It's been a hot minute since it's been just me and you talking, chatting. Um, today is going to begin a series. I don't know how long this is going to last. You know us. It's either going to be just for the month of October or it's going to be longer than that. Who freaking knows? It's definitely for this month. So expect (laughs) this, which I'm about to explain in a minute if you didn't look at what the title of the episode is. This episode is late. Uh, (laughs) We skipped a week. That is because I actually have a reason this time. It's not just us all being lazy. (laughs) The reason is because We now, as you are listening to this, have a website you can go to. Yes. Did she go to MIT? No, she didn't. She just, (laughs) she just figured it out. Um, listen, it was a lot of hard work. Um, I would be lying if I said that I still don't know if it's (laughs) like user friendly. We'll see. I don't know. Let me know. Uh, that being said, if you go to overthetopics.com, a website will pop up. We wanted to do something where the um, it could be interactive with everybody. So every time we upload a new podcast episode, it will show up there. The website, we wanted it, for now at least, to be dedicated to the cold cases we talk about specifically. So once an episode is live, you'll be able to see there is an open discussion board for each. For example... There will be an open discussion board for the little girl that we're talking about today, Maria Rydolf. Um, That way, if you have any thoughts about the case or any information or just theories about who you think did it, anything related to the case, you can put it in the discussion board and talk with other people or just with us about it. Um, I thought that was a cool idea. (laughs) So every... Oh, my phone. So every... um, time a new cold case episode is up we will add a discussion board specifically dedicated to that case that being said obviously be respectful to the victim the victim's family everybody involved and each other you know you know you know just don't be don't be fucking rude (laughs) okay okay i'm not gonna say that every time now you know there's a website that goes along with it link will be in the description of this podcast or you could just Google overthetopics.com will pop up. Thank you. It might take a week or two to work out the kinks, but you know, you know. Okay, now I'm going to give, we're going to have the same setup for each case. Normally, it will not just be me doing the cold cases. This week, everyone was busy. Um, so I'm going to be solo on this one. We're going to try to stick to the same format, which I'll explain in a second. Um, I know the other girls also picked cold cases that they wanted to talk about. We're trying not only to do well-known cold cases like John Benet Ramsey, you know, like everyone knows about that. We're just trying to bring awareness to cases. If you have any cases that you want us to talk about, you can suggest it on the website. There will be options for you to be able to email us or obviously you can go to our Instagram page, DM us. You can DM us individually on our Instagrams. There's so many ways to get a hold of us. Just let us know if you have something specific you want to hear about. That being said, the breakdown of the cold cases we talk about, I'll give a little bit of background on the cold case. And then we'll get into the crime itself. And then I'm flipping through my notes. 
and then the different suspects that there are. Um, obviously, the suspects that we talk about might not even be the person who did it. This is just the suspects that were looked at when the case happened. Any information regarding new information that they got, like, years later. Court proceedings, you know, the normal rundown. This week, we're talking about Maria, but obviously next week, we'll be talking about a different individual. I still want to stay up to date on all the people that we do talk about in case any new information comes to light, like this year. Like, you know how the Zodiac Killer just got solved recently? I want to stay up to date on cold cases, so I will... Be updating the website if they ever find any information for people that we talk about in the past. I'll stay up to date. So if anything comes to light that I don't talk about today about Maria, it will be on the website in the future. Okay, let's get into the case. Maria Elizabeth Rydolph was born on March 12th of 1950. She was a seven-year-old girl who disappeared from Sycamore, Illinois on December 3rd, 1957. Her remains were found almost five months later in a wooded area near Woodbine, Illinois, approximately 90 miles from her home. Maria was last seen by her friend on her neighborhood corner of Center Cross Street and Archie Place with an unknown man in his early 20s who called himself Johnny. The case, which was well known in the Chicago area, was one of the oldest cold case murders in the United States to be presumably solved. Jack McConnell, McConnelly, McConnell, I think, I'm pretty sure it's spelled, I'm pretty sure it's McConnell, who under his former name, John Tessier, had been a neighbor of the Rydolph family, was convicted for her murder in September of 2012. However, in March of 2016, the DeKalb County State's Attorney announced that a post-conviction review of available evidence showed McCall could not have been present at the place and time of Maria Rydolph's likely abduction. McCallow, I hope I'm saying his name right, was released from prison on April 15th of 2016 and the charges against him were dismissed on April 22nd of 2016 as well. McCallow, was declared innocent of the crime by the DeKalb County Circuit Court on April 12th of 2017. That was a little bit of general information on the case. Now we're going to go into the background of Maria herself and then the crime or what is known about what happened based on evidence they found when they found her. Maria Rydolph was born on March 12th of 1950 to Michael and Francis Ivy Rydolph in Sycamore, Illinois. She was the youngest of four children and had two sisters and a brother. Although many residents lived or worked on farms in the area, her father Michael worked at one of Sycamore's few factories. Her mother Frances was a homemaker. At the time she was abducted, Maria was seven years old, 44 inches tall, and weighed 53 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. She was an honor student, then in second grade. She also received awards for perfect Sunday school attendance at Evangelica Lutheran Church of St. John. According to her mother, Maria was high-strung. Quote, my daughter was a nervous girl, and if she got in any trouble, would become hysterical, Francis said in a 1957 interview shortly after Maria disappeared. Quote, someone would probably have to kill her to keep her quiet. I am the only one who could calm her down. End quote. Maria was described as a screamer and afraid of the dark. Her best friend was eight-year-old Kathy Sigmund, who lived on the same street as the Rydolphs. Now we're going to get into the day 
of the crime and what is known leading up to the event. On the evening of December 3rd, 1957, Maria begged to be allowed to go outside as it had started to snow. After finishing dinner, Maria and Kathy Sigmund went outside in the dark as the sun had set near Maria's house and played a game they called Duck the Cars, running back and forth trying to avoid the headlights of oncoming cars in the street. According to Kathy, they were approached by a man whom Kathy later described to police as in his early 20s and tall with a slender chin, light hair, a gap in his teeth, and wearing a colorful sweater. The man who said his name was Johnny told the girls that he was 24 and not married. I have so many comments I already want to make. But I'm going to try to keep my rambling that we know I love to do to myself. But I'm going to make this one comment. Why would a 24-year-old man have to tell two children who are the age of um, eight that he was not married? Like, how did that come up in combo? Don't know. Don't like it. Hate it. Suspicious. I'm going to keep my thoughts and my comments to myself. <laughs> he asked if they liked dolls and if they liked piggyback rides. He gave Maria a piggyback ride, after which she went home and got a doll to show him. After Maria returned, Kathy ran back to her house to get her mittens, leaving Maria alone with the man. When Kathy returned, Maria and the man were gone. Kathy went to the ride-off's house to tell them she couldn't find Maria. The family initially thought Maria was hiding and sent Maria's 11-year-old brother to look for her. After he was unable to find her, the write-offs called the police and within an hour, police and armed civilians began a search of the town but failed to locate Maria or Johnny, the man with whom she was last seen. The FBI, presuming that Maria might have been abducted across state lines, arrived in Sycamore within two days to help the local and state police in the search. The FBI and police interviewed numerous witnesses who had seen the two girls playing without any other person present between 6 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. and also spoke to family members who had seen or spoken with Maria and Kathy in the course of Maria getting her doll, Kathy getting her mittens, and Kathy reporting Maria's disappearance to the write-offs. Based on these interviews, Johnny was thought to have approached the girls after 6.30 p.m., and the FBI concluded that Maria was abducted between 6.45 and 7 p.m. Kathy Sigmund was the only witness who had seen Johnny and was placed in protective custody as the police and FBI feared that the kidnapper would come back and harm her. The authorities had her look at photos of convicted felons or suspects who bore a resemblance to Johnny. John Tessier, who was convicted of the crime over 50 years later, lived in the girl's neighborhood and was on the original list of suspects based on a tip, but the police failed to have Kathy identify him after he provided an alibi for the night of the crime, which we'll talk about him um, more when we talk about the suspects. In late December of 1957, Kathy was taken to the Dane County Sheriff's Office in Madison, Wisconsin, to see a lineup of possible suspects. She positively identified Thomas Joseph Riverd, described in FBI documents as a 35-year-old man, approximately 5 foot 4 inches tall and 156 pounds, with dark blonde, wavy slash bushy hair. However, Riverd had an alibi as he was in jail at the time of the kidnapping. Police suspected someone else in the lineup as the real culprit and Riverd was merely used to fill out the lineup. Rivert also did not physically resemble Tessier, who was six inches taller and 17 years younger than Rivert. When asked years later about the 1957 lineup, Kathy said she did not remember picking Rivert out of the lineup. Maria's disappearance received national news coverage and both President Dwight D. Eisenhower and FBI Director J. Edward Hoover took an interest in the case. 
Law enforcement continued to investigate various suspects in the area, including transients, known sex offenders, and a local man who had given children piggyback rides, but developed no solid leads. Maria's parents appeared on television and in other medias pleading for their daughter's safe return and the public's help in finding her. On April 26, 1958, near Woodbine, Illinois, which is 23 miles east of Galena and approximately 100 miles from Sycamore, two tourists searching for mushrooms in a wooded area along U.S. Route 20 discovered the skeletal remains of a small child wearing only a shirt, undershirt, and socks under a partially fallen tree. The decomposed condition of the body indicated it had been there for several months. The body was identified as Maria Rydolph based on dental records, a lock of hair, and the shirts and socks that she had been wearing when she disappeared. The rest of Maria's clothing, including her coat, slacks, shoes, and undergarment, was not found. No photographs were taken of the crime scene, although photos were taken of the general location without showing the body because the coroner, James Furlong, did not want photos of the child's body leaked to newspapers. Because the crime had occurred within Illinois, rather than crossing state lines, the FBI withdrew from the case, leaving it to state and local police. I have so many comments I want to make. I <sighs> Normally, on like my YouTube channel, I make all the comments that I want. I'm trying to stay more professional on the podcast. Don't know why, but I have so many freaking, like, okay, I'm going to make my comment and then I'll continue. Why would they not take freaking photos of the body? I understand you don't want photos leaked to the media and you don't want, obviously, that's it's so sad to have to take photos of a dead child's body. But that could be helpful if you had questions in the future or if police years and years later were investigating the case and they needed to know specifics like how was the body positioned? Is this similar to cases happening if it is a serial killer? Like why would... Ugh, it just makes me mad. <laughs> just makes me mad. The initial autopsy did not determine a cause of death due to the state of decomposition. During an autopsy done 50 years later, a forensic anthropologist determined Maria had likely been stabbed several times in the throat, which we'll give more information on that when we talk about the reopening of the case, because that's obviously was new information that they found out not at the time it occurred. So we will get more into that, but now we're moving on from the crime to talk about the suspects. I believe there are only two. Yeah, we have two suspects. So the first suspect we will be talking about is John Tessier, also known as Jack McCullough. John Tessier was born John Cherry on November 27th of 1939 in Belfast, Northern Ireland to British Sergeant Samuel Cherry and his wife Eileen McCullough Cherry. Samuel Cherry was killed early in World War II. During the war, Eileen Cherry served as one of the first female airplane spotters with the UK's Royal Air Force and met Ralph Tessier, who was serving in the United States 8th Armed Force at RAF Bovigden, England. Y'all, I'm trying my best with the pronunciation. We know I can't talk. <laughs> she married Ralph Tessier in November of 1944, and after the war, she and her son, John, then aged seven, followed Ralph to Sycamore, Illinois, where Ralph and Eileen had six more children together over the years. After his mother's marriage, John used the last name Tessier, although he was still sometimes called John Cherry. 
The Tessier family, home to Sycamore, was located around the corner from the Rydolph home, less than two blocks away. Ralph Tessier, a sign painter, painted insignia on the doors of Sycamore police cars and was friendly with the police chief. John Tessier was expelled from school in the 10th grade for pushing a teacher and calling her a name. At the time of Maria Rydolph's disappearance, he was 18 years old and living at home with his parents and siblings while making plans to join the U.S. Air Force. On December 4th, investigators visited the Tessier home as part of their neighborhood search for Maria. According to Tessier's half-sister, Catherine Tessier, also last name Caulfield, and Jean, I think it's pronounced Jean, it's J-E-A-N-N-E, um, Tessier, their mother told the investigators that John Tessier had been home on the night of December 3rd, something that they later testified was not true. Shortly thereafter, before Maria's body was found, the FBI investigated Tessier as a possible suspect. Sources differ on whether the investigation was triggered by a tip from a local resident or by John Tessier's own parents seeking to clear their son, who they realized had the same name and general description as Johnny. Tessier and his parents told FBI investigators that on December 3rd of 1957, Tessier was in Rockford, Illinois, approximately 40 miles northwest of Sycamore, to enlist in the Air Force. It's important to note that this story differed from his mom's previous statement, where, as reported by the daughters, Tessier had been home all night, so already we're having contradicting statements for his alibi. Not looking good for him, but continuing. He said he had been in Chicago on December 2nd and 3rd, undergoing physical examinations required for his enlistment. On the morning of December 3rd, he had visited the Chicago recruiting station, which was corroborated by records, and then spent the day sightseeing in Chicago before returning to Rockford by train that evening, arriving there at 6.45 p.m. Upon his arrival in Rockford, he had called his parents to ask for a ride home to Sycamore since he had taken the train to and from Chicago and left his own car at home. Telephone records were later found showing that a collect call was placed from the Rockford post office to the Tessier home at 6.57 p.m. that evening by someone who gave his name as John Tessier as written down by the operator. After making the call, Tessier then met with officers from the Rockford recruitment station to drop off paperwork relating to his enlistment. The officers confirmed that they spoke with Tessier around 7.15 p.m. that evening, although one officer also expressed some concerns about Tessier's credibility and conduct. Tessier was brought to the police station to take a lie detector test, which he passed. In view of his alibi and the lie detector test results, Tessier was taken off the suspect list and the FBI closed out his report on December 10th of 1957, noting, quote, no further investigation is being conducted regarding the above suspect, end quote. Kathy Sigmund was never shown a photograph of him or asked to identify him. Tessier left Sycamore the next day to report for basic training at Lackland, Air Force Base. I am going to make my own comment. I know I keep saying that I'm not going to, but I'm going to. Couple things. One, hate when people give false alibis for other people. Like, look, come on. It's, we're talking about a dead little girl. Like, BFFR, be fucking for real. Also, I found, I'm pretty sure I stated this in the cases that I talk about on the YouTube channel that I have when I talk about the serial killers. I feel like at least, I'm gonna give an actual guesstimate, 80%, I feel like, of the serial killers that I talk about on my YouTube channel all 
are members or were members of the military, whether it be like the Air Force, the Navy, like any department, is that the right word? Any branch, that's the word, of the government's Navy, military, whatever, they were all members. Like, is that a thing? Do they go because they know that they're going to kill people? Um, Or is it a way for them to escape or be like traveling so they can commit crimes, but also travel i don't understand what why is it such a strong correlation between the two but honestly that part of the fact that he was a part of the military makes me think he did it even more (laughs) which we're gonna finish talking about him then we'll talk about the other suspect maybe that'll change our minds but right now tessier is looking like the one who did it you know tessier served in the u.s military for 13 years and rose to the rank of captain After leaving the service, he moved to Seattle, Washington, where he subsequently graduated from the King County Law Enforcement Academy in June of 1974 and became a police officer in the small town of Lacey near Olympia. He later joined the police department in Milton, Washington, where he clashed with the chief of police who attempted to fire him and documented a long list of complaints about his work and conduct. In 1982, in Tacoma, Washington, Tessier took in a 15-year-old runaway, Michelle Weinman, and her friend who knew Tessier as a Milton police officer. Weinman later testified that shortly after she began living with Tessier, he fondled her and then performed oral sex on her. Tessier was charged with statutory rape, a felony. After plea negotiations, he eventually pleaded guilty to communication with a minor for immoral purposes, a misdemeanor. He was sentenced to one year of formal probation and was terminated from the Milton Police Department on March 10th of 1982. He should have went to jail for a lot longer. He should have went to jail, period. He didn't even go to jail. Jeez. On April 27th, 1994, John Tessier legally changed his name to Jack Daniel McCullen, saying that he wanted to honor his late mother. No, no, no. He was trying to escape his very shoddy past. By 2011, McCullen, now in his early 70s, was living at a retirement community in northwest Seattle where he worked as a security guard. That's all the information we have on him. Um, last little comment before we move on to the next suspect. Isn't that crazy? Like, now, in 2011, he was just some old man living in a retirement community. Like, you could pass people on the street every day and not know their past. Like, fully, you could have conversations with people and they could... Oh my god, it's just crazy to think about. You really don't know people. The second suspect we're going to be talking about is William Henry Redmond. In 1997, Sycamore Police Lieutenant Patrick Solar closed the then 40-year-old write-off case, naming William Henry Redmond a former truck driver and carnival worker from Nebraska who had died in 1992 as the man who had likely abducted and killed Maria Rydolf. Redmond had been charged in 1988 with the 1951 murder of an 8-year-old Pennsylvania girl, although the case was dismissed when a police officer refused to reveal the name of a confidential informant. Redmond was also a suspect in the 1951 disappearance of 10-year-old Beverly Potts in Ohio. According to Solar, Redmond told a fellow inmate that he committed a crime similar to the write-off abduction and murder. Solar also believed that Redmond's appearance and behavior matched that of Johnny. 
Solar's report was criticized due to lack of supporting evidence and alleged political motivations. Solar himself acknowledged that the evidence against Redmond was circumstantial and that if Redmond had lived, it would have been difficult to convict him in the Rydolf case unless he confessed. For that reason, Solar called the Rydolf's case closed but not solved, leaving open the possibility that a better suspect might later be found. When Jack McCullough was later tried in the Rydolf case, the trial judge ruled out any testimony about Redmond on the grounds that he was not a credible suspect. That's all the information we have on that guy. Now we're going to talk about the reopening of the case where they found like the cause of death and everything. The case was reopened in 2008 based on new information from McCullough's half-sister, Janet Tessier. According to Janet, their mother, Eileen Tessier, on her deathbed in January of 1994 had said, quote, those two little girls and the one that disappeared, John did it. John did it and you have to tell someone, end quote. Janet took the statement as meaning that her half-brother, John Tessier, had kidnapped and murdered Maria Rydolph. She had also heard from her other sister that Eileen had lied to investigators that he had been home the night of the crime. Another of McCullough's half-sisters, Mary Pat Tessier, also known as last name Hunt, was also present when Eileen spoke to Janet, but later testified that she had only heard her mother say he did it. Nevertheless, Mary Pat testified that she had the same understanding as Janet and that her older sister had suspected John Tessier of the murder for years. At the time, Eileen, a cancer patient, was on morphine and according to her doctor, was disoriented. McCullough, who allegedly had once threatened to kill Janet with a gun and sexually molested his half-sister, Jean, when she was a minor, was estranged from the Tessier family by the time of Eileen's death. She was told not to attend her funeral. This man sounds like a piece of shit. Janet Tessier said that she made several fruitless attempts over the next 14 years to get law enforcement, including the Sycamore Police and the FBI, to look into her mother's statement. Patrick Solar, who during part of this time was a lieutenant with the Sycamore Police and had identified William Henry Redmond as the most likely suspect in the Rydolph murder, told CNN that Janet had never spoken to him, but that he would not have suspected John Tessier because he knew the Tessier family. Ralph Tessier had painted the Sycamore Police cars and John Tessier had been cleared by the FBI in 1957. In 2008, Janet emailed an Illinois State Police tip line, resulting in the State Police Cold Case Unit undertaking a lengthy investigation into McCullen's background and alibi. Janet's sister Catherine and Jean told investigators of their suspicions, and Jean said that John had molested her as a child and other young girls. Another woman alleged that John Tessier had given her a piggyback ride as a child and refused to put her down until her father intervened. State police investigators reviewed evidence and developed a new timeline under which Tessier could have kidnapped Maria and driven to Redford in time to make a telephone call at 6.57 p.m. and meet with recruiting officers at 7.15 p.m. Under this new timeline, they determined that Maria would have been kidnapped no later than 6.20 p.m. The police search for Maria was underway by 7 p.m., according to Catherine, who said she had returned home from a party at 7 p.m., to find the search in progress. Hoping to have Kathy Chapman review a photographic lineup, police took five pictures from the 1957 Sycamore High School yearbook, but John Tessier's picture was not in the yearbook as he had been expelled. Police obtained a contemporary photo of him with his former girlfriend, 
which differed from the yearbook photos in that Tessier was wearing an open collar rather than a suit and the background was dark rather than light, Chapman identified the picture of Tessier. Along with the picture, Tessier's former girlfriend provided an unused military-issued train ticket from Redford to Chicago dated December 1957. The investigators took this to suggest the contrary to Tessier's alibi. Tessier had not taken the train on his trip to Chicago and had instead driven his car there, meaning that he could have driven back to Sycamore afternoon on December 3rd, kidnapping Maria and driving to Redford. Rockford. Oh my god, have I been saying Redford? I mean Rockford. I'm so sorry. The police located a high school friend of Tessier's who recalled seeing Tessier's distinctively painted car in Sycamore that afternoon and said that Tessier did not let anyone drive his car. In July of 2011, the Seattle Police Department, which had joined with the Illinois State Police in the investigation, brought McCullough in for questioning. At first, McCullough spoke calmly and cooperated, but when faced with questions about the murder of Maria Rydolph, and his whereabouts on the night of the crime, he became evasive and aggressive. After McCullough refused to answer any more questions, he was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rydolph and extradited to Illinois. Maria's body was exhumed that same month to check for DNA evidence, but none could be found. However, a forensic anthropologist found that Maria had been stabbed in the throat at least three times by a sharp, long blade pointing out nicks on her sternum, and neck vertebrae consistent with at least three slashes to her throat. Although stabbing was considered a likely cause of death, an appellant court later stated that the findings did not preclude other possible causes of death, such as ligature strangulation, which could not be adequately investigated due to the decomposition of soft tissue. News of the arrest in the 54-year-old murder case drew national attention. The lead prosecutor, DeKalb County State's attorney Clay Campbell, was reluctant to take the case due to its age and the lack of any physical evidence connecting McCullough to the crime. But, after being persuaded by the Rydolph and Tessier families, who all believed that McCullough was guilty, he formally charged McCullough with the kidnapping and murder of Maria. Okay, now on to the trial. At the trial in September of 2012, the prosecution contended that McCullough was attracted to Maria and decided to kidnap her, but instead ended up killing her, presenting new autopsy reports suggesting Maria was stabbed to death. Although the prosecutors suspected McCullough of molesting Maria, they were unable to prove it and never brought it up in court. Numerous witnesses testified for the prosecution, including Maria's family members, neighbors, law enforcement personnel, and Kathy Sigmund Chapman, who was the star witness and identified McCullough as Johnny, the man who had walked up to her and Maria 50 years earlier. Another childhood friend of Maria's testified that she had also been offered a piggyback ride from Johnny and identified him as McCullough. Three inmates who were jailed with McCullough testified that he had talked about killing Maria. However, their stories were both inconsistent and failed to match the evidence indicating Maria had been stabbed. One inmate said McCullough spoke of strangling Maria with a wire and another said McCullough accidentally smothered her to stop her from screaming. The defense argued that the prosecutors and police were pressured by the Rydolph and Tessier families to solve the case and implicate McCullough, although there were no physical evidence, motive, or indication that McCullough was in the area where Maria was kidnapped. McCullough did not take the stand in his own defense on the advice of his attorneys. On September 14th of 2012, McCullough was convicted of the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rydolph and received a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 20 years. 
He was 73 years old at the time of sentencing. McCullough appealed his convictions. On February 13, 2015, the Illinois Appellate Court in the 2nd District upheld his murder conviction, but vacated his convictions for kidnapping and abduction as being outside the three-year statute of limitations in effect for those crimes in 1957. The decision had no effect on McCullough's life sentence as the sentencing court had provided that the sentencing for kidnapping and abduction would merge into McCullough's life sentence for murder. Although the appellate court ruled that Eileen Tessier's deathbed statement should not have been admitted as evidence against McCullough, the court declined to overturn the murder conviction because Judge Halleck did not rely heavily upon the statement in issuing the conviction. In 2015, McCall acted pro se, filed a petition for post-conviction relief asking that his murder conviction be set aside. After McCall's petition was initially dismissed by the court as frivolous and without merit, the public defender who had originally represented McCall at trial and who had continued to investigate the case while staying in touch with McCullough, despite the fact that he was no longer appointed to defend McCullough, asked the court to reconsider the dismissal. McCullough filed a successive motion that could not be denied without a hearing from the state's attorney office. In response to the motions, DeKalb County State's Attorney Richard Schmack, (laughs) I know I I hope that's right. I'm just going to call him Richard if his name comes up again because I really don't think I'm saying his last name correctly who had replaced Clay Campbell in the position, conducted an extensive review of the evidence which led Richard to conclude that McCullough could not have committed the crimes and was actually innocent. According to Richard, evidence was kept out of the trial that clearly established McCullough's whereabouts on the evening of Maria Rydolph's abduction and supported his alibi. In particular, phone records from Illinois Bell showed that McCullough made a collect call to his mother that evening from a payphone in downtown Rockford rather than from Sycamore as alleged at his trial. Given the timing of the telephone call, the approximately 40-mile distance between Sycamore and Rockford and icy road conditions, Richard concluded that McCullough could not possibly have been in Sycamore at the time of Maria Rydolph's disappearance. Following a March 2016 court hearing on April 15th of 2016, Judge William P. Brady of the Illinois Circuit Court vacated McCullough's original conviction and sentenced and ordered a new trial. McCullough, who remained charged with the crime, was released on bond that day pending the new trial. A week later, Judge Brady dismissed the charges against McCullough. However, the dismissal of the murder charge was without prejudice, meaning that McCullough would be tried again for the murder of Maria Rydolph should a prosecutor wish to do so. Brady postponed ruling on a request by Maria's brother, Charles Rydolph, backed by the signatures of hundreds of Sycamore citizens, including the city's mayor, that a special prosecutor be appointed to replace Richard on McCullough's case. On August 5th of 2016, Judge Brady denied the motion for a special prosecutor. Charles Rydolph then stated that he would not appeal the ruling. McCullough was declared actually innocent of the crime by the DeKalb County Circuit Court on April 12th of 2017. On July 21st, 2016, Porter, son-in-law of McCullough's, filed a lawsuit, case 2016-CH-09536, Cook County, Illinois against the Illinois State Police and Sycamore Police Department for refusal to comply with the Freedom of Information Act request related to the investigation of the case. 
The FOIA request was prompted by Richard's allegations of police misconduct on November 3rd of 2015. Now we're just going to talk about a memorial that's set up for Maria and then anything related to the case that has been in the media currently, like uh, books, shows, anything like that in case you want to watch slash learn more about the case. The Maria Rideoff Memorial Map, an eight-foot square map of Sycamore constructed of steel and porcelain, was mounted on the front exterior of the Sycamore Municipal Building in 1958 in commemoration of Maria Rideoff. The map was removed in 2002 and replaced with a bronze memorial plaque that was installed on a pedestal outside the municipal building. The Rideoff family also established a Maria Rideoff Memorial Fund that was originally used to pay for the memorial map and was later used as a scholarship, compassion, and summer camp fund for local children in need. A portion of the proceedings from Charles Lachman's 2014 book about the case, Footsteps in the Snow, was donated to the fund. At the time of the McCulls' 2012 trial and conviction, the case was the subject of several news documentaries, including an episode of 48 Hours, and a CNN interactive web feature entitled Taken, the Coldest Case Ever Solved. A true crime book by Charles Lachman, Footsteps in the Snow, released in 2014, also became the basis for a Lifetime Movie Network documentary of the same name. These works, which were published before McCullough's conviction was overturned, presumed that the case had been successfully solved. In contrast, Northern Illinois author Jeffrey Dean Doty Doty, self-published a non-fiction book, Piggyback, released in 2014, in which he reviewed evidence and court filings in the case and examined whether McCullough had been wrongfully convicted. As part of his review of McCullough's case, state attorneys Richard Schmack read Taken, Footsteps in the Snow, and Piggyback and cited to portions of Taken and Footsteps in his 2016 court filings supporting McCullough's innocence. That is all the information that I have on the murder of Maria Rideoff. Again, we have that website available over the topics.com where if you have any thoughts, comments, information, anything else that you want to talk about or that I didn't mention that you want mentioned about the case, you can visit the website. There will be an open discussion board. Um, you leave your comments there. We'll respond to you, have a little chit chat about the case. Next week, we will have another cold case um that we're going to talk about we're also this month going to try to get up our recap for the months of october not october oh my god jessica the months of august and september because we have skipped both of those months that will be in addition to the cold case episodes that we're going to release so if we are able to get those recorded in time that will be a little bonus episode probably put out on like a friday or something or wednesday we'll see Either a Wednesday or Friday. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Have a great rest of your week. You can find us on Instagram individually, but also on our Over the Topics Instagram. You can visit our website. You can visit my YouTube channel. You can visit all of our TikToks. You can visit so many different places if you miss us. Twitter even. Jeez, we need to get off social media. <laughs> Thank you and goodbye.